Our sermon text this morning comes from the book of Psalm. We'll look at chapter 72 of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the new moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. Precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Shabbat be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. We haven't met. My name is Victor Kim. I am a ministry resident here at Liberty, uh, serving since uh, the beginning of October. And so these last two months have been a real time of blessing, uh, being able to serve uh, this church and you all here in, in my position. Uh, I still talk with... A number of my former co-workers and direct reports at my previous place of employment and uh, oftentimes they bring up because they have not yet hired my replacement uh, they bring up uh, some concerns and say well we're worried about our new boss uh, who they're gonna hire as your replacement they say uh, you know we're just not sure what this new boss is gonna be all about you might be strict might be overly chatty, he might have unnecessary meetings that we hate, or odd rules about our bathroom breaks. Their concerns can be easily relatable as I believe that at one point, all of us, myself included, have experienced changes in leadership, whether it be in the workplace or elsewhere, maybe more broadly experiencing changes in the government, each leader brings with them something that defines their position, something that categorizes their time in power. When we think about our Christian faith, Scripture makes clear in countless places that Jesus is the King. 
seated at the right hand of the throne of the Almighty, exercising rule and authority as the king above kings. So this morning we ask the question, what is it that defines Jesus as our king? What are the unique distinguishing factors that Jesus brings along in his rule? It's my hope that as we go through Psalm 72 together this morning, we're going to come to see that Jesus has come as the king of justice and righteousness and to establish a kingdom that is marked by these same qualities. As we come to this great, rich understanding of who Jesus is as the king and the beauty of his kingdom, I pray that we would be greatly encouraged this Advent season, finding hope and long for his return as we press onward in this broken world. My sermon this morning will have two points. Uh, The first point will be the king and his kingdom, and the second will be longing for the king. So the king and his kingdom, and longing for the king. As we come to Psalm 72, we see that it begins with a superscript that reads, Of Solomon. This can also be understood as concerning Solomon, uh, for Solomon, about Solomon. And uh, this is confirmed as we look at the end of the psalm in verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is a prayer of David for his son Solomon as the crown is passing from father to son. A prayer for Solomon that his kingship would surpass David's. During David's reign, he did many great things. He would conquer the city of Jerusalem, rebuild the city, enter in diplomatic relationships with foreign nations to set his son up for success. And as David prays for his son and thinks about his future rule, he makes a petition directly to God in verse 1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. David prays that God would endow upon the future king God's own justice and righteousness. In other words, this prayer is that the king would actually partake and share in God's character. That the king would rule with God's justice and righteousness in all the decisions that he made and all that he did as king. This is further spelled out as we look at the following verses. As he writes, May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Notice here in verse 2, we see the scope of who the king's people belonged to. Because while it was true, in fact, that the king ruled over the people, they were first and foremost God's people. They belonged to the Lord. And in this way, the king in that time was to act as a vice regent of God's authority. That is to say that a king who ruled in the place of God. This prayer was that the newly established king would rule in the same way that God showed care for his people. With justice and in righteousness. And we need to pause here because this is a beautiful thing because we see God's heart for the people, for 
the poor. But before we even look at that, what do we mean by this term poor? It's used in many ways throughout Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament. And we looked at it in depth when we had a series on the Sermon on the Mount, when we saw poor in spirit. So what is it meant here when we see this word come up time and time again, poor? We look at verse 4, we see a clear picture of what is meant here in this context. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. As David writes, for the king to judge the poor with justice, defend the cause of the poor, he is making a clear distinction as he is considering God's people. It's not as though Israel as a whole is categorized as weak and poor, although they are in many ways. But here, we understand that referencing the poor means a group oppressed by others, people who are suffering trouble and unfairness. Uses of this term poor throughout the Psalter, including Psalm 10, Psalm 14, among many others, and throughout Scripture. And the point made here is that among the people that the king was to care for, there's bound to be the powerful and the weak, the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor. And here we see something very beautiful, that God has a special concern for the weak, the poor, and the needy. And so the prayer here is that as the king rules with God's authority, with the very character of God, he is to do so with special concern for the weak. Looking ahead at the psalm, this is further emphasized in verses 12 to 14. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. As the king rules with justice, he intervenes on behalf of the poor among God's people. He is the compassionate one who helps those who have no one else to stand up for them. As I was going through this text and preparing this sermon, this is... To me, this was just amazing that such a king would have a concern for the lowest in society because this is the exact opposite of how things normally work out, is it not? When you're at the top, when you have a position of power, your concern is for those who can help keep you there, who can help further your position, the powerful, the influential, those with means to get ahead, those in authority. But not so is for this king in Psalm 72. Here we find a compassionate king who has a heart for the lost. Psalm 72 describes this ideal king. Notice here how the king's justice and righteousness actually has an influence over the people he rules over. Verse 7, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. We see here that as the king is exercising his God-given authority in righteousness, with justice, it has a direct effect on people. They flourish in harmony and in righteousness. More than just people flourishing, we also see that this king 
who rules in righteousness also has an effect on creation itself. Verse 3, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Following verse 2 in the prayer for the king to judge with people in righteousness and the poor with justice, we see parallels in the land itself. See it again in verse 6. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. You might hear me say that and say, well, Victor, don't you know anything? Don't you know the genre that we are reading? This is a song. This is a poem. In a poem, we are to expect highly stylized language like this, right? Comparing someone's rule and reign to the rain uh, falls on freshly mown grass. Well, this is a psalm, and this is a poem, and we would expect language like that. I think we can't deny verse 16 that continues this idea that the king's justice and righteousness has an effect on creation itself. May there be an abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of mountains, may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. Here in verse 16, the psalmist is weaving themes previously mentioned. Mountains bearing prosperity for the people. Verse 3, the righteous flourishing in verse 7. And so this relationship between the king and creation is brought up time and time again. And to this we might say, this is weird. Because we're dealing with an earthly king here, right? A reign that is supposed to take place in real time and space. And so it's hard to believe. No, no leader, whether it be a king, a president, a boss, a pastor, any figure of authority, who would experience something like this? That their godly rule and authority has an effect on creation be unbelievable if you came up to me and said, hey, Victor, I uh, got this new boss at work, and I'm so thankful for him. So tell me about him. So uh, he's, what a godly man, what a godly woman. Uh, exercises rule and righteousness and justice, has a concern for the lowest among us, even those making minimum wage in our company. He just gets it. But get this, ever since he's been boss, Everything is going well. The toilets never clogged anymore. I don't know what's going on. That rat problem that we had, we didn't call the exterminator, just gone. Guy with the body odor problem started using deodorant. Right, the guy who walks around the office with no shoes, got new shoes. How great. Everything is perfect. The temperature is always perfect. Not a drafty spot in the office, thanks to this boss. How unbelievable would that be? Psalm 72 gets a little more unbelievable when we consider the ways that it describes the extent of the king's rule. Verse 5, May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. Verse 15, Long may he live. Verse 17, May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. Not only is this king to rule with the very character of God that affects creation itself, but his rule was to extend for all time. 
And in this way, as David writes this psalm for his son, he also looks ahead to the day that would come where that promised Savior in Genesis 3 would come to establish God's kingdom here on earth to make right all things made wrong by our sin. Because the truth of the matter is, neither David nor Solomon lived that long. And I believe that even as David prays this for his son, he is acutely aware that Solomon would reign, but also die. And yet, with great expectation, David writes in Psalm 72, in response to the Lord's promise in 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your throne shall be established forever. At the coronation of every new king in Israel, this psalm was sung and prayed time and time again that the king would reign with justice and righteousness with the very character of God. But sadly, as we consider the history of God's people, there is no such king like this in Israel. You read through the book of Kings and you see just a transcript of utter failure as king after king, time and time again, with exception of a few, would walk in the sins of their fathers, turning their people from the Lord. There isn't even such a king in the book of Samuel. David started off well, but by the end of his life, his concern was much more for his own interests and securing his own future dynasty than it was for the people under his care who he was called to love and serve. And even for his son, at the end of his life, he would turn from the Lord, ensnared by the love of women who would lead him to do evil in the Lord's sight. We have to wait for Jesus to find a king who would fulfill all of these things described here in Psalm 72, a king who, according to Philippians 2, was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself in order that he might be the one to fulfill these things, to deliver the needy, the poor, those who have no helper, having pity on the weak and needing, saving the lives of the needy, redeeming their lives from oppression and violence. Precious is their blood in the sight of Jesus. We see this compassion lived out in Jesus' life and in his ministry as you read through the Gospels, not to stand at a distance to heal the sick, but to enter in their lives, to touch them. His heart would break for those who are broken. One of my favorite instances of this is when Jesus cleanses a leper in Mark 1. And he asks, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved by pity, Jesus touches this man and says, I am, I will be clean. And we see this throughout time and time again. Matthew 14, he sees a great crowd and has compassion on them and heals their sick. What an incredible king 
This Jesus is a king moved by compassion and a heart for the lost who enters into the lives of those who need him and walks alongside with them. This is our king who enters in our own hurt and has compassion for us, who understands our every temptation, every hurt that we experience, our deepest needs. A king who does not rule from afar, but enters into our lives to walk with us. This everlasting king promised throughout scripture and in Isaiah 9, who would establish his kingdom, uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. Seeing Jesus as the king whom this psalm looks forward to, we're actually better able to understand the reality of this seemingly unbelievable kingdom and king described in Psalm 72. So when we think about the kingdom of God, a king whose rule affects creation itself, we recognize that God's kingdom is not simply a moral world order where we do justice and righteousness here, but instead it encompasses the ultimate rule of God in creation, a real visible kingdom where characteristics of justice and righteousness radiate from the king to his people and in creation, one that lasts for all time. When I stop to think about this, it's hard to believe You might be like me. You have to really stop and really reflect on what does it mean for this kingdom is all-encompassing? Because my mind can't fathom what something would look like to stretch beyond borders of my own understanding. I studied history in my undergraduate studies, and I know, I said, well, you know, when a kingdom gets too big, (laughs) that's when it falls. But how can this kingdom be as it is described here in Psalm 72, beyond the borders, where all nations bow down and serve him. But this is the kingdom that Jesus brings. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we celebrate this Advent season, we rejoice in knowing that this king and kingdom are here. He has come. Just as Psalm 72 ties so closely the king To his kingdom, so also does Jesus tie himself as the center of the kingdom. And in his coming, he has come to inaugurate this kingdom that will have no end. Luke 17, 21, he identifies himself as the center as he responds to the Pharisees. He says, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's me. (laughs) I'm here, and therefore, so is the kingdom. Even as I was preparing this sermon, and even as I hear myself saying these things, it can still be hard to believe that such a king and kingdom are here. When we look at the world around us, when we look at the broken, when we see the wicked flourishing at times, it's hard to believe that a king of justice, king of righteousness, whose rule affects even creation itself, has come. This brings me to my second and final point, longing for the king. Because during this Advent season, we not only celebrate the coming of Jesus in his incarnation, but we also recognize a deep longing that we have for his return. 
Because while Jesus has come to fulfill all that Psalm 72 has promised, bringing about a ruling kingdom marked by justice and righteousness, we also long for that day when his kingdom will come in its fullness, a day where Revelation 20 describes as a day where there will be no more crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away, and until that day comes, we live in this awkward time, the last days as scripture describes, where God's kingdom continues to advance more and more as the old perishes away. And There's good reason for this. Second Peter makes clear that God is actually withholding that final day of judgment. The kingdom is not fully here yet. Why? Because God is desiring for many to come to know him. That we would come to repentance and call upon Jesus' name in faith and be saved. Because for those of us here this morning that have done this, and have called upon Jesus as our Savior, recognizing our need for Jesus, the good news is that we are now united to this Jesus who sits on his throne in a kingdom that is here and will fully come at a later time. And for this reason, Paul is able to write in his introduction in Galatians, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, delivering us to his kingdom. The coming age and order, that is where we belong. That is where we live. Although the forgiveness of sins is a deeply personal matter, it is so shallow if we just leave it at that way. Because the fact of the matter is, as we are saved, we are brought into a kingdom where our king, Jesus, reigns. King of justice, and righteousness. Now, belonging to this kingdom under the reign of Jesus, this now informs our lives as people who endure during these last days, especially as we interact with the world around us. Forces us to look at ourselves and ask, are our lives, much like Psalm 72, marked by the king's reign in justice and in righteousness? In Psalm 72, we see God's heart for the lost. Jesus' rule as king who has a concern for the justice for the poor, the needy, those who are weak. And so as citizens of this kingdom, Psalm 72 asks us, how do we even think through issues of justice? What do we measure justice with? Psalm 72 reminds us of our identity in this kingdom. It challenges us on every side to consider justice in a way that is wholly reflective of God's character. Not what the world says about justice, but in such a way that reflects who God is in his character. It confronts us to have a concern for those that Jesus came to serve, the lowly, the weak, the despised, and the needy. And as the king's justice affects the lives of his people, it's my prayer that we as a church on this block, in this city, would seek justice as described in Psalm 72 to enter into the lives of the people who need it. Not by standing afar, but having compassion for these people. And as the world witnesses us seeking justice in this way, it's also my prayer that we would be such a great testimony to those seeking the very same things. 
that we would not only partner with people and groups seeking justice, but that the church would be the forefront in leader in leading these issues. We don't seek equality for marginalized groups merely for equality's sake, nor do we seek to help those less fortunate than us for morality's sake, but instead we do so because we understand the great dignity that all men have created in the image of God, called from all ends of the earth to worship God together. We do so with a true heart shaped by compassionate King Jesus. Psalm 72 shows us a lot. Gives us a wonderful picture of Jesus as the just and righteous king who has come to establish a kingdom marked by these characteristics. But if you're anything like me as you go through this psalm, it's crushing. Because who among us can really say that I have a true concern for justice? My heart breaks for the weak. More often than not, my heart doesn't. Even thinking about a kingdom as a kingdom of righteousness, oftentimes our lives reflect lives shaped and categorized by this world rather than his eternal kingdom. But when we look at verses 18 and 19, we're also able to sing with this psalmist, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things, not because our salvation is dependent on our ability to be just, to do righteousness, but instead we are saved, none other than our compassionate and righteous King who came to deliver us from our sins and to save our lives. And as we read through Psalm 72, it's us who identifies with those who are in need of a helper, those who are deserving the full wrath of God. But as we strive to live in accordance with Psalm 72, under Jesus' rule, we do so with confidence, clothed in Christ's own righteousness, and prompts us to sing, Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen.